And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. As soon as y'all heard me say we were going to be teaching through Revelation, this is the piece I know that everybody was like, come on, let's get to that. Not that we wanted to rush through the seven churches, not that we wanted to skip over the scenes of heaven, but let's not lie. This is the part that gets most of us excited when we talk about teaching Revelation. We have begun the prophetic portion, and we will be in the prophetic portion until the end of this book, and I am very excited that we finally got here. We're talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse today. So if I can't keep you awake on this day, I might as well go back to Peru and retire, I suppose. But... According to verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord had told John what he wanted him to write down. He said, I want you to write what you have seen, which was Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Write what is now, which is the letters to the seven churches. And he says, then I want you to write what will be. And this is what we turn to today. Last time, as we sang this morning, the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, took the scroll in heaven, which was sealed with seven seals, which represents God's plan for the end. There's a number of ways of thinking about what that scroll might represent, but at the very least, this is God's plan to judge and restore the world. And heaven was crying out, is anyone worthy to get this thing started? And there was Jesus Christ, that by the blood shed on the cross, was worthy to take that scroll and begin to open its seals. And that's what's going to happen today. He's going to start opening up the seals and going to inaugurate and begin God's plan for the end. And I mentioned in chapter 4, verse 1, without getting into all the details again, we believe in the rapture of the church prior to these final events. We've talked about it at length in many places, and we take a position that is called the pre-tribulational rapture position, which means we believe that Christ will take his church back to heaven before what is known in Bible prophecy as the tribulation. And from chapter 6 through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, that's what John is writing about, is the tribulation period. And I'm going to try to teach this like you've never been taught this before, meaning I'm trying to try and lay out the basics as much as I can so that somebody who is hearing all these things for the first time will not feel like they're being left out. So what is this here? I'll define it first, and then we'll get all the scriptures to back this up. And I will tell you this is going to be a very informational type of Bible study today. So I hope you're ready to learn some things. The tribulation with a capital T is a seven-year period of judgment that immediately precedes Jesus Christ's return. I'll say that again. The tribulation period is a seven-year period of judgment that immediately precedes Christ's return. And there's various interpretations of how this is going to play out, but we follow what is called the literal interpretation. Maybe normal interpretation would be better, meaning that when the Bible says it, we believe that that's the way it is to be understood, not with a bunch of uh, secret codes or backgrounds or allegories, but that when it talks about this, that's actually what's going to happen. So if we wonder what's going to happen in the future, well, before Christ returns, there's going to be seven years where things are going to get bad, really, really bad. And Revelation gives us a lot of details about what will take place during that time. But in order to understand it, we've got to place these chapters that we're going to be reading within the framework that the Bible's already given. Now, we have done verse-by-verse -verse studies through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and the book of Daniel. We did a whole conference last year on Bible prophecy that you could go back and, and look at. But we're just going to review for today to help us understand what we're talking about. The Old Testament prophets 
described that there would come a time of oppression and trouble at the end of time through which Israel would be saved and restored to their kingdom. And this is called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, it, it refers to the day that Jesus returns, but it also has a broader sense of meaning the, the time in which Jesus is executing these things. For example, Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 7 and 9, the prophet said, Alas, maybe we should bring that word back, alas, when you know, your team goes down by 20 points. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And if you read those verses before and after, Jeremiah explains that there's going to be time where Israel is going to be oppressed and crushed and many will die, but out of that is going to come their final restoration to their kingdom under the son of David, who of course we know to be Jesus. A time of distress for Jacob. Joel 2 verse 11 talks about the same thing. It is a day of darkness. It is a day of judgment. If you know the classic uh, Gregorian chant, the Dies Irae, maybe you've heard that before. Dies Irae, Dies la. That means day of judgment, day of darkness. And that is all talking about the days preceding the return of Jesus, what we call the tribulation. That there's going to be a time where Israel is put through the ringer, and out of that is going to come their kingdom, and our Lord Jesus Christ will return. Now at this present time, as we talked about in Romans at great length, Israel has been hardened. Their hearts have been hardened, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened, because of the rejection of their Messiah. Romans 11.25 says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That God is taking the time to redeem the Gentiles, save the rest of the world, but Israel has been partially hardened, meaning there will be no national revival and repentance until Jesus comes back. And Zechariah 12 through 14 talks about that an awful lot. But it tells us in the book of Daniel what the Lord is going to do in order to lift the hardness of heart upon his people. And Daniel 9 verses 26 and 27 says this, After 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Now the word for anointed one is Mashiach. It's where we get our word Messiah from. So, after the Messiah is cut off and have nothing, which is the death of Jesus, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he, meaning the prince who is to come, more on him in a second, will make a strong covenant with many for one week or one seven. And for half of the week he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So without explaining all of that, what Daniel 9 tells us is that Israel has one week of history remaining. One seven is the word, meaning they have seven years left. And now what's going to happen to begin that is that this prince who is coming will make a covenant for seven years which is where we get our timeline of the tribulation. And that for half of it, it's going to be oppression and destruction towards the Jews, the abomination of desolation. So here, what do we have? We have that at the end, there's going to be a time where Israel is put through the ringer in order to drive them to repentance and bring them back to Jesus Christ, their Messiah. 
And that is going to last seven years because that's how much time Daniel says they have remaining. And that after half of those seven years, this prince who is coming is going to take away the sacrifices. He's going to take away their temple. He's going to commit an incredible blasphemy that's going to lead to three and a half years of terrible, terrible trouble. So when we talk about this seven-year tribulation period, this last week, the first half is typically spoken of as being not so bad, but the second half is the worst time the world has ever known. And when Jesus was asked about the end of time, he answered that question in a very similar manner. He said in Matthew 23 that, or 24 that the temple is going to be destroyed. And the disciples said, hey, uh, Jesus, when is that going to happen? And, and also, while we're at it, what's going to happen at the end of the world? It's pretty, I love the way the disciples asked questions. It's like, and while you're on that subject, maybe you could talk more about how the world's going to end. Well, Jesus answered them. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. And the next thing Jesus talks about there is that abomination of desolation, the great blasphemy that will be committed halfway through the, that seven-year period, which will really accelerate the problems. Now, many people will read those verses that Jesus just described, wars and rumors of wars, and uh, they'll, you know, the, many will say, I am the Christ, but will not be. And they say, this is the days in which we are living right now. And that, you know, it's birth pangs and they're going to get worse until the tribulation comes. Uh, I disagree with that interpretation. I think what Jesus is talking about in those verses is when this last week begins. That when these seven years begin, the first half is, is going to have false Christs. It's going to have wars. It's going to have death. It's, it's going to build. But he says, but these things are going to be the beginning of the birth pangs. And anytime the Bible talks about birth pangs in this way, it's almost always talking about those last seven years. So I think Jesus there is referring to the first half of the tribulation, not the time in which we live now. Because this is when people will say things like, well, earth, earthquakes are getting worse and hurricanes are getting worse and worse. And that's how we know, uh, you know we're getting close to the end. The COVID just proves it, right? Well, yeah, COVID was bad, but it certainly wasn't anything like the Black Plague, now was it? So when you try to, you know, you, you become obligated to say that this one has to be worse than the last one in order to build to the end. But I think if you interpret that as Jesus saying, once the rapture takes place and the, the seven-year week begins, then things are going to start building, building, building until it just blows up and things go, go terrible. I think that's what he's saying. I think that makes an awful lot more sense especially as we look at the seven seals given in the book of Revelation here, these seal judgments, that they line up pretty much exactly to what Jesus is talking about. So we say that there's this seven-year period of tribulation that's going to come. It's going to be a time where God is going to be punishing and, and chastising Israel so that they will finally accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That halfway through, there's going to be an incredible blasphemy committed by a man we call the Antichrist that will signal the end of the end, the worst of the worst. But Jesus told us that first half is going to be like labor pains, that it's going to get worse and worse. And you might at first go, oh, that one's not so bad. And then, oh, well, that, that actually, that really hurts. And then it's going to be building up towards the end. 
And I think that this, these four horsemen that we're going to talk about are describing the same thing. I think that what we're going to look at today is what is it going to be like at the beginning of the tribulation, the first perhaps three and a half years. Of course, if you've done your study on this, there's a great debate over whether Revelation should be interpreted sequentially or cyclically. Because we're going to have seven seals, and then there's going to be seven trumpets, and then there's going to be seven bowls. And there are some that think it's really describing the same sequence, that the, the seven seals are the same thing as the seven trumpets or the same thing as the seven bowls. And that's part of the fun of trying to interpret the book of Revelation. John Walverd, who is a great pre-trib scholar, believes you should interpret it sequentially. Ed Heinsen, who is another great pre-trib scholar, believes you should interpret it cyclically. But I do think that more or less, while there can be some overlap, we're going to be following this line straight through. This is to be interpreted sequentially. And I think that is, that's the best way to understand this because it lines up with what Jesus said about the early days of the tribulation as well as what Daniel said about the early days, which are bad, but not that bad. Like normal levels of bad, not quite the cataclysmic, apocalyptic, no pun intended, uh, end of the world. So when Jesus opens up this first seal and he begins to talk about these things that are coming, he's going to inaugurate those final seven years, which are the birth pangs of Jesus's kingdom. And at the end, what's going to be born is an everlasting kingdom with Jesus at the head. Amen. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of context of where this is. Chapter six, verses one and two. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So we're still in that heavenly scene. The lamb that was slain has taken the scroll, which represents the, the plan for the end of the world. And you know they would seal things with wax. They'd pour hot wax on it. They'd put their ring in it or something like that. And then when the wax hardened, that's what held the paper together. So there's seven of these on this scroll. And Jesus pops the first one. Boom, right? And then one of these living creatures that had the, the four faces, remember these guys? Says, come. Now, some of the, especially older translations, they, they include the words and see. As in they're calling John to come and take a look. Obviously, John is going to come and look. But uh, some of the newer translations that have it shorter, it could be that what this thing is doing is actually calling upon these horsemen to start riding. It's like, your time has come, let's go. It doesn't really affect how you interpret it, but if you see the difference of, of text in your Bible, I like to call that out sometimes. So we see a white horse and a man riding upon it. And this man is, is a conqueror. Notice this. This is not peacetime. He's got a bow in his hand. Some people try to make a lot out of the fact that he has a bow and no arrows. Uh, I think you could just as well imply that there are arrows if he's carrying a bow. And he's given a crown. This is not the word diadem, which means a kingly crown. This is the word stephanos, which means a victor's crown. This is what was given the laurel wreaths that were placed upon the head of the ones that won battles or that won the Olympic Games. So he's a victorious conqueror on a white horse. Now there are two main ways to interpret this. There's lots of strange ideas, but we'll just focus on the two main ones. This is either Jesus and his kingdom, or it's the Antichrist and his kingdom. Now, those are pretty different interpretations of this. Opposites, you might say. 
Now, it is true in chapter 19, verse 11, that Jesus Christ will return on a white horse. And who rides on it is faithful and true. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. Jesus is also a conqueror. Jesus will also set up a kingdom. However, if you look at the other three horsemen, it's famine and death and plagues and terrible things happening. And because they're all of a set, it seems to me, and I would say to probably most interpreters, this is actually the Antichrist. That he looks kind of like Jesus, which is sort of the idea. Jesus will also come on a white horse. He also will have crowns. And he also will strike down the nations. But you will see that what follows after Jesus is an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. What follows after the Antichrist is the Great Tribulation. So that's how we're going to interpret this. It is also worth noting that the uh, certain sects of Islam interpret this white horseman to be their Mahdi, their Messiah who is going to come. And they believe that Christians have deliberately falsified this passage to make him look like the bad guy, when in reality, uh, the Mahdi, when he comes, is going to do all the things Christians say the Antichrist will do, except those will be good things, which... I can't think of a better deception to prepare somebody for Satan's Antichrist, can you? So we have here an imitator, an imposter, someone that, according to 1 John 2.18, is giving the name of Antichrist. And that means false Christ or against Christ or opposed to Christ. And he's given lots of titles in the Bible, son of lawlessness, son of destruction. Those are all very descriptive. But when we're talking about Bible prophecy, for the most part, we use this phrase antichrist to take all of those things together. And when we were in the uh, book of Daniel, we talked about him an awful lot. And later on in this book, we're going to talk about him an awful lot. But today, I'll just give you the basics. All Bible prophecy agrees that the first thing that will happen to inaugurate that final seven-year period is the rise of a world empire that will be led by a tyrannical figure known as the Antichrist. The figure on that horse there, I then believe to be the, this Antichrist, although if you want to be technical about it, this passage is not so much talking about him as the kingdom which he represents. This worldwide empire that is going to cover the globe and oppress it. Daniel chapter 7 talks about this, verses 23 through 25. I'm only trying to read representative verses here other than the whole section. But he says, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So that would be one year, two years, and half a year. So three and a half. So let me sum that up. The beginning of this last seven-year period that we call the Tribulation, an empire shall arise and cover the globe. Daniel says that this is a coalition of 10 different kingdoms or 10 different nations. And we may in some parts of the Bible have an indication of who they are. We'll talk more about that when we get to it. There's a great difference of opinion on that. But it says that they will trample the whole earth. So if this white horse represents this empire rising, conquering and to conquer. 
and gaining a laurel, a Stephanos, a crown as it marches. Now, this Antichrist figure will not become the dominant dictator of all prophecy until the midpoint of the tribulation. But I think if you look at how he's described here, and as we read in Daniel chapter 9, that he is the one that will forge peace with Israel, that this guy has a hand in the conquest and the negotiations. I've said before that perhaps this guy is the military leader that the people loves. And about halfway through, he's going to be sick and tired of listening to this, this oligarchy of ten kingdoms and is going to assert himself. So some people are like, no, no, Antichrist is only for three and a half years, not seven. True enough, but I think he's going to be around. People are going to know who he is. And he's going to be up to no good and seems to have a very strong part to play here. Daniel 9.27 says he will forge a covenant with Israel for seven years. And then three and a half years later, he will break it. He will commit, as I said, that great blasphemy, the abomination of desolation, which Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, what day? The day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So again, if you're hearing this for the first time, I'm going to try to give you lots of little anchors to hold on to. We believe at the end of the world, there's going to be a seven-year period that we call the tribulation. It's going to start with the rise of a worldwide empire with 10 kingdoms working together to take over the world, like Pinky and the Brain. They're going to take over the world, or at least they're going to try. And one of the things they're going to do at the beginning of that time is that they're going to forge a covenant or an alliance that includes the nation of Israel. So you can see that perhaps it's not all conquest, but there's probably covenants that are going on and alliances that are made, as, as happens when empires take over the world. But Israel is going to be a prominent piece of this. And that will last for three and a half years, this, this tenuous peace. And it will be led by this man that we call the Antichrist, sitting on a white horse who's going to establish this kingdom. And then halfway through, he's going to break the, the covenant with Israel, set himself up, not just as king of the world, but as God and require worship of himself. What does this tell us? This tells us that one day, all of your fears of a totalitarian, globalist regime are going to come to pass. Although the details are not made known to us so much about who this is or what it's going to look like, uh, the dominant opinion here, which is very good reasons for it, is that this is a revived Roman empire that this would be the people of Rome or people that at least represent Rome in some way are going to return on the earth. Uh, another minority view, which I tend to favor, although I'm not dogmatic on it, is that this is a revived Ottoman Empire, a revived Islamic Caliphate. The parallels are, are incredible. We've talked about it before. Revelation just calls it Babylon. That it, it's, it's probably a symbolic name, although if it is an Islamic Empire, perhaps it's actually Babylon and not just a, a made-up name. But Babylon will rise again. Let's put it that way. Babylon will rise again and conquer the whole world. And we're going to discuss this empire and this king in more detail later, as we did in the book of Daniel. But for now, what do we have? A seven-year period of trouble that starts with the rise of Babylon. That includes making a covenant with the people of Israel. That's the first horse. Number two, verses three and four. When he opened the second seal, doom, 
Maybe that's what it said. It was doom when he opened it up. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the second is a red horse. And this rider is going to bring about war. And he's given a great, so great sword, meaning he is granted authority. No authority arises except that which is from God. And this obviously represents war amid the rise of Babylon, the rise of Antichrist's empire. That is, he's going out conquering and to conquer with a, with a bow in his hand that there's going to be war because people are not going to just sit there and let themselves be conquered. So this is what I mean by they're sequential, but there's definitely some overlap here. Do you know what I'm talking about? That there are places where it's kind of talking about the same thing just in sequence. That not everybody's going to go quietly. There are some people who believe, and Tim LaHaye was one of those that was uh, held to this view, that the Antichrist would sweep into power without bloodshed. I do not agree with that. Uh, there will be some, it seems like Israel, that are willing to take the deal he's going to offer them. But he says he goes out conquering and to conquer. He's got a bow in his hand. Some people believe this is an image of the Parthians that were the great enemies of Rome at this time, that they were using the image of their greatest enemies that were sort of like the Huns. They fought on horseback with bows in their hands in order to describe the, the conqueror that is going to come. But it's not a bloodless victory. A sword is given to this red horseman. That they're going to fight with each other. There's going to be negotiation. This, these ten kingdoms are going to be allied together. But what did Jesus tell us would happen at this time? First, he said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, the first horseman. But then he said, there will be wars and rumors of wars. This is not going to be a peaceful time. You know, the first three and a half years of the tribulation are not as bad, meaning you don't have like demon armies being unleashed on the world, but it's going to be bad. It's going to be war. Many people are going to resist this empire. Some have speculated that is where America figures into this picture. That America will be one of these nations that resists and gets put down because nobody is going to beat the Antichrist except Jesus at the very end because he's been given a crown, a sword has been placed in his hand, that his rise is in order to facilitate God's purposes for the world. The first three years of the tribulation are terrible, although they are not quite yet supernatural. Does that make sense? Imagine right now if all the world were to go to war and really mean it. Now, we've been seeing the war, for example, in Ukraine, between Russia and Ukraine, and that's been awful to see war, but the, the, the restraint that everybody has is we've got these world-ending, world-blowing-up bombs that nobody uses. Why? Because if I use it, then you're going to use it, and entire cities are going to collapse, and it could even affect the ecology of the world and everything. So there's always that restraint. Imagine if everybody, like World War I or World War II-level conflict and people are not holding back at all. That's not, that's not a good scene to be a part of, is it? No holds barred. Every weapon is allowed. Chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, whatever secret stuff they're hiding in the desert somewhere, I don't know. I have no theories on that. Don't try to make friends about that with me because <laughs> I have no idea. But this is exactly what we know about Daniel chapter 11. From Daniel chapter 11, excuse me. 
Talking about the Antichrist, he says, He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. So this guy's a warlord. Don't make that mistake that he's going to conquer the world. He's going to divide kingdoms and give them to his followers. His only God that he worships is the God of fortresses. Point being, he's not going to be a religiously observant person. All he cares about is winning these battles. And it is interesting to me that many years ago, not many, last time we really had a renewed conversation on these things with you know, the Left Behind books and that whole deal, um, many people couldn't understand um, or, or thought it would have to be a peaceful thing because people wouldn't just accept him and nobody's going to follow an old warlord. I mean, those days are over. Sure makes an awful lot of sense now, doesn't it? When you see, when you see the, the fire that people have in their hearts and you see the strange things that people are willing to go after, appealing to people's masculinity maybe even. So that's enough. That's enough sitting around and just taking it. Let's just go. Let's just go conquer the world. It's what we're supposed to do because we can. People will go, yeah, I'll follow that guy. I'll follow him anywhere. I imagine there will be in a, a pretense and an appearance of peace, because that's what every dictator tries to do, as they violently and terribly put down anybody who resists. We're trying to bring about the world utopia, and you guys are stopping us, so that's why we had to nuke you. This is why, to me, and I'm going to bring bringing up all these options here, uh, the idea of the renewed caliphate sounds so appealing. Because the foreign god, who's the god of fortresses in battle and asserts his kingdom through the sword, I mean, that's exactly what the early caliphs did through spreading Islam around the world. It, was, it wasn't like, you know, come to the altar and bow your head, every eye closed. It was, I'll cut off your head if you say no. And that has been the pattern in the past. Although Rome was equally ferocious, although they had all of their gods that they followed. So perhaps there's differences of opinion here. But a sword is given to him by God himself. Because man's restraint has been removed. Imagine people fighting wars without any divine intervention at all. Many will die. Many, many will die. And we'll see about this again in a minute. Verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So this, this continues the pattern. We have a black horse and an announcement about the food supply. He's got scales in his hand. It represents commerce, represents prices. And the announcement indicates that a day's wages, one denarius was about what you'd get paid for a day's work, will supply one meal's worth of grain. So you work all day, and that's enough to buy like one loaf of bread, basically. It'll get you a little more barley, but barley is an inferior cereal, so it was not desirable. It wasn't as good for you. So the point is, there's an economic collapse here, that it's a disaster. You know, whether you want to call it inflation, whether you want to call it just a famine or a shortage, wars, of course, devastate the crops, for various reasons that resources are put into other places and economies that are on a wartime footing are very precarious. You all know that. Well, now imagine the whole world is at war, either trying to conquer the world or resisting the conquest of the world. Global conflict, global upheaval. 
But it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. Two ways to interpret that, and I think they're both fine. You just make your own opinion here. That either this is general lack, meaning don't harm the oil and the wine, meaning there's not enough left, don't touch it. Nobody has oil anymore, nobody has wine anymore, and if you've got some, save it for a rainy day because you're going to need it. Or one new idea that I read that I kind of liked, although I'm not sure if it's 100% accurate, uh, is that this is talking about luxuries, that oil and wine represent luxuries that somebody can afford, meaning that the poor of the world are enduring these terrible things while the rich are just getting richer and richer. And that certainly fits the way we like to think about things. I'm not 100% positive that's what he's talking about. Um, pretty much everybody could afford oil and wine in those days. It wasn't just reserved for the, for the rich. But the point is, things are expensive and nobody can get them. That the economy has been devastated, which is exactly what you should expect when there's massive warfare around the world. The economic system will totally convulse. This is also perhaps how and why this one dominant empire, why Babylon, will be able to take control of the economy. This is the one that everybody knows, even if they're not even a Christian, they just know about this one, that at some point you're going to have to have a mark on your hand or your head to buy or to sell, right? And people used to think it was American Express back in the day and, you know, whatever. It's, we don't know what it's going to be. But the point is that eventually Babylon will take control of the world's economy. And they decide who can buy, who can't, who can sell, who can't. Perhaps in the wake of this economic devastation, when they are asserting and consolidating their rule, this will be their way to step in and take control of things. And you know that this is how corrupt individuals work. When things go bad, this is their opportunity to take more power for themselves. We saw this in various places during the pandemic, for example. Regardless of how you feel about that, bad people use that as an opportunity to arrogate power to themselves. I don't think that's, that's that controversial to say. I hope not. But this could be the excuse that Babylon is given in order to institute the mark on the hand and the head. We're going to finally get a handle on this economy thing. We're going to ration it. We're going to be careful to make sure that until this food supply is, stabilizes, this is how we're going to do it. You can see how the devil is remaking the world in his own dastardly image through this. That he raises up this empire that's going to strive to conquer the whole world. And there's going to be war all over the place. And now people don't have food anymore. Which leads to the fourth one in verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed after him. Hades, or the grave, or hell. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. A pale horse. The word there is chloros. It's where we get the word chlorine from. And it's, it's actually a green color, but not like verdant grass and trees green. It's a pale, sickly green color. It was very often used to describe a decaying corpse. So by calling it a pale horse, could very well mean that John saw a rotting, decaying, for lack of a better word, zombie horse. That this is death's horse. It's already dead, but he's still riding it. We're told that this horse represents death. And Hades, which is the word for grave, in the Old Testament they use the word sheol. It's the same idea. It's where dead people go. Is right behind him. And he explains that a quarter of the population will die. Which means, with today's numbers... Two billion people from battle, from starvation, 
from diseases, which is, of course, what happens when there's malnutrition and when there's warfare and things are getting blown up, and also by wild beasts, which seems to mean that civilization is taking such a beating that the world is reverting to a state of savagery and barbarism. And animals are going to be taking over the globe and, and harming people. Many times in the book of Revelation, it'll tell us that a certain proportion of the world will be killed. And this is why many people think you shouldn't read it sequentially, but you should read it you know, cyclically. That really, this devastation of all these people, it's talking about the same thing. Problem with that, though, is it doesn't always give us the same proportion. Sometimes it's a quarter, sometimes it's a third. Some, you know, it, it's not the same deal, which tells me that reading it in order is more natural and that while there will be lots of events in the tribulation, there will be certain things that amount to uh, the greater cataclysms of these things. So I think this initial set of four horsemen, which I believe is describing the rise of the Antichrist empire, the rise of Babylon, the kingdom comes, great war, the famine is terrible and the economy collapses and people start to die. And that in the process of while Babylon is taking power, a quarter of the world will be dead. Now, how do you kill that many people? We certainly have the capability, don't we? I'm not even an anti-nuke kind of guy. I'm just saying we have the capability to kill that many people. We are living in the days where these things are not only conceivable, but they're, they're things that we even worry about now. The collapse of the global economy. What happens if everybody goes to war again? So I think that this is not the same thing as, for example, later when it will say a, a third of the people died. I think those things are, it's going to be a third of whoever's left after all these things die. Scripture divides, as I said, the seven years of tribulation into the first three and a half and the second three and a half. In the middle, you have the abomination of desolation, the ultimate blasphemy when the Antichrist takes sole power of the world. And the second half of that is called the Great Tribulation. And it is eminently worse than the first half. But the point I'm trying to show you today, it's all bad. It's all bad. When the Lord takes away his church and removes the restraint of the Holy Spirit, it's going to get bad immediately. Cities will be wiped out, perhaps even nuclear exchanges. Some people believe that that's some of the things that are described symbolically in the book of Revelation. It'll lead to the world reverting to barbarism and savagery because when Satan comes riding, death comes after him. Because John 10.10, 10, Jesus said that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. And you can understand that if this empire rises and it's death to a quarter of the world and nobody has any food and people are even afraid of the wild animals running through their cities, that after three and a half years of that, they might be ready for a strong man to come in and take command of the whole thing. That's what happened in, in Russia, you know, with the revolution, that it wasn't long because things were not getting better when they just started to turn to men like Stalin just to take control of it. That's part of what happened uh, after World War II with all the, the terrible things that were happening in Germany and the inflation that was happening because of the depression. But it was worse for them because uh, the Treaty of Versailles had kind of pressed them down. That they were so sick and tired of it, they were ready to turn to a guy like Adolf Hitler that most of them didn't like much, but they figured, well, at least he might get us back on track. We have seen this pattern play out through history before. Of course, when it happens in the end, it's going to be way, way worse. So what are we learning today from this? When the final empire takes control, the world will begin to ravage itself through constant war. That is the first and primary judgment that God is going to bring on the world. He's just to say, fine, have it your way. 
Do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to stop you anymore. This must happen. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1 talks about how God will give people over to their sin. That when they resist him for too long, it says the Lord gives them over. He removes his hand of restraint and says, fine, have it your way. There's going to come a time where that is going to be happening globally. Fine, if you want to do this so bad, I'm going to let you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8 explains the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it, restrains what? Restrains lawlessness, will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul tells us in that chapter, the mystery of lawlessness, meaning the rise of Babylon, whatever it's going to be, is already at work. Satan is trying. He's always been trying. But it says that, the, that the, there is a restrainer. Well, who's able to restrain Satan but the Holy Spirit? And not just the Holy Spirit, but the work of the Holy Spirit through the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're God's victorious army, taking the gospel all around the world. We've seen that where the gospel goes, these worst savage tendencies of people get reduced. And that gospel changes lives. And revivals come and bring things back from the edge. And as bad as things get, the Lord is able to bring it back. But Paul says a day is going to come where the restrainer will be out of the way. I believe that that event is the rapture itself. That the Lord will remove not just his people, but their influence on the world through the Holy Spirit. Which is so great, Jesus said, no one will ever be able to stop you. So we must be removed, in my opinion. But it tells us that even now, Satan is actively trying to bring about these things. Satan has plans for an evil empire all over the earth. As 1 John 2.18 tells us, there have been many antichrists up till now. I think men like Genghis Khan, men like Napoleon, men like Muhammad, these people that just were ravaging the world and, and trying to take over. But the Holy Spirit has restrained him. After the rapture, Satan will be given free reign. God's not going to stop him this time. And events, according to Revelation 6, will escalate very, very quickly. Until that day, we are not afraid of this happening. And in fact... Uh, there are so many that get worried that we might be living in these days right now who somehow believe in the rapture of the church. I don't understand that. Uh, we believe that the rapture will take place first. And until that day comes, the church is going to march all over the world victorious. That there will be a great apostasy and a great rebellion and that we will be removed. The day I see somebody standing in the temple declaring himself to be God, I will admit, all right, I was wrong on this one. <laughs> But there's not even right now a holy place for him to defile. So tells us we've still got time. I don't want to teach you these things so that you go home and find your, your favorite anti-globalist blog and say, see, it's what the Bible was talking about. It's like, don't do that, please, all right? What do we do in response to these things? We get out there and preach the gospel, you guys. If you want to see your nation brought back from the brink, go preach the gospel. Well, that's not enough. Excuse me? Excuse me? Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against you, right? So don't, don't think about yourself so small. Don't think about Jesus so small. But I will give us another piece of, of as I said, it's mostly instruction today, but a piece of instruction and application at the end here. We should beware of anybody that resembles these descriptions that we've read today. I think most people tend to be, but we've seen throughout history, people have a bad habit of getting duped by people like this. Anybody who 
is just obsessed with conquest and bloodshed. There, there have been people that have had large swaths of, of empire and territory that have not been the same as these bloodthirsty Babylonians that we're reading about here. Blasphemous people. We, we watch out for them. Well, they got good ideas, but they hate Jesus. No, thank you. No, thank you, please. People that are merciless. People that seem to have a vested interest in making things worse so that they can bring power to themselves. And it doesn't matter what letter they have after their name around November, you guys. Christians need to be a little separate from those things and be able to evaluate them through heaven's eyes. But what we need to remember is that our efforts ultimately will not stop the end from coming. Nor, by the way, would we even want them to. When God says it's time to go, it's time to go. And I believe that we will be taken home at that point. But in either way, God is wise. And the Lord sees fit to take this scroll and begin to open its seals. And who are we to say, no, 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 not yet, Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that by preaching the gospel and walking in righteousness, we can hasten the day of his coming. The Lord goes, if y'all finish the job faster, I'll bring an end to it faster. Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus had said, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. And I think that's what we've been discussing today. And verse 22 of that chapter, he said, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And the elect in that context is Israel, the people that God is going to be awakening through this process. What would it take for worldwide Judaism as it stands right now to collectively acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? It would take about something like this. And the Lord loves his people enough to not only judge the world, which he will be doing, but also to use it to bring about their repentance. The story will end with Jesus victorious and the church resurrected. So here's the question for you today. Which kingdom is yours? Is God's kingdom your kingdom or is Babylon your kingdom? Now you might say, I'm a good American. I don't want anybody taking over the world and telling me how to buy and sell things. Well, good. But it's not enough to hate the Antichrist. You've got to love the true Christ, Jesus. So I won't let anybody tell me what to do. Well, he is God, very God, and he has the right to tell you what to do. And if you expect to spend eternity in heaven, then you need to be sold as a slave to our Lord Jesus Christ, bought with the price of his blood. To use this picture of, of kings and queens, have you bowed the knee to Jesus, sworn fealty to Jesus, said, you, my army is yours. Whatever power I have belongs to you as your God and your king. King Jesus is not just a nice term, you know. King Jesus might as well be Lord, might as well be best friend, might as well be whatever. King means something. Americans kicked out their king. Twice, actually, in history, if you look back at it. But Jesus Christ is the king of kings. The king of every president and every prime minister and every elder and every mayor and every councilman, every mother and father in the world must bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Or you will be susceptible when Antichrist comes. Well, not me. Okay, then you're going to get steamrolled by his empire and end up in the same place anyhow. Because it's not about, do you hate him? Do you love Jesus? The good news is today, I can offer you deliverance, not just from the coming tyranny, but from hell itself, by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For everybody who believes in the work he has done and calls him their king and lives their life after him and renounces the old one will be saved. And when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, we will be rewarded by his grace.